If you are joining with us this morning, we are in Acts. We're working our way through Acts. And so we're going to turn to Acts 17. And you'll find Pew Bibles just in the holders in front of you. Uh, If you haven't uh, a Bible with you this morning, Acts 17. And we do encourage everyone to read along with us. As we come to God's Word, we, we have great importance in keeping it open and seeing it for ourselves, not just taking what I say or Nigel said to be truth, but we want you to see it in God's Word. So please do open up your Bibles, Acts 17, and you'll find that on page 1113. And as you turn that up, we're going to look at verse 16, so Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin to read at verse 16. Nigel led a reflection for us on the first few verses of chapter 17 during our prayer meeting this week. And now we're going to pick up in verse 17. So, this is God's Word to us, and therefore we know we can trust it completely. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into a meeting of the Areopagus, and they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. 
In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof to this. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dianus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a, a woman named Demarius, a number, and a number of others. Well, let's uh, turn to Acts 17, uh, those words that we read earlier, page 1113 in the Pew Bibles. Acts 17, John said, good for us to, to follow along. We do want to make sure that what we are saying is really what the Bible is saying, and, and we uh, do want to, to check that that's the case. I don't know if you enjoy a city break. It's something that uh, Katrina and I uh, have really come to enjoy, that chance to be in a new place and soak up a new history and culture, even if it is Donna Cloney. I'm not sure uh, if Donna Cloney does city breaks yet or not, but uh, you can add to your list London and New York and Paris and all the sorts of places that people say you've got to visit. If you were living 2,000 years ago, there's no question that uh, Athens would be on your list. Its heyday had been uh, hundreds of years earlier than it was when Paul visited it. But uh, at that stage, in its heyday, the, the ancient Greek uh, city-state was a real force to be reckoned with in the world. But even after it came into the, the Roman Empire, Athens exercised huge influence, especially in the world of ideas. So Greek philosophy uh, shaped the thinking of the world, and, and, and to some extent it still does. We, we might have heard of people like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, and today we're looking at the time that Paul visited Athens. It's a hugely important part of the Bible because in many ways, Athens is, is the very sort of center of non-Christian thinking in the New Testament. And, and there's lots to learn because it, it, was the, it was the world without the Scriptures. It was the world that, that hadn't been prepared to hear the gospel in a sense. And, and you remember that what Paul characteristically did was when he went to a new city, he, he went to a synagogue to those people in a sense who had been prepared to hear about Jesus. They were, they were those who were, who were uh, living within that sort of Christian framework of knowing that there was one God and, and, and who was, they were waiting for a Messiah. And Paul was able to reason from the Scriptures and say, the Messiah that you're waiting for is this Jesus. But in uh, Athens, it was pretty much different. There was a, a small synagogue, perhaps, but uh, he, he finds himself uh, talking with people who are not prepared. And, and in so many ways, that's our world today. So many of the folk that we rub shoulders with just come out of a completely different framework as far as the gospel is concerned. So that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at uh, how we should engage with a world that doesn't know Jesus. How should we understand it? And what should we say to it? So the first thing we're going to see is how should we, how should we see the world? How should we see the world? Look at verse 16. While, while Paul was 
waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul is in Athens on his own. Normally, Paul uh, is involved in these missionary journeys with uh, somebody else with him. And uh, here he is waiting for Silas and Timothy to sort of catch him up. Uh, he's been sent to Athens for his own safety. It wasn't easy for him uh, on some of these journeys. And uh, rather than have a city break, he is doing what he is burdened to do, and that is to preach the gospel there. You see that in verse 18. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And he's doing that both in the, the synagogue with those who are prepared and in the marketplace with those who are not. So he's, he's preaching to anyone who will listen. And there's this a little line that, that tells us what strikes him about Athens, that he was greatly distressed to see, see that the city was full of idols. Some of the scholars tell us that Athens at that stage had about 10,000 people living in it, but that there were 30,000 idols in the city. So, statues and images of numerous gods that were part of Greek thinking. One of the ancient writers said it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. And in fact, that word uh, translated full of idols can mean smothered in idols. So, you just get this picture of a city that's just coming down with idols. Now, now we might think, well, that's just a, a quaint bit of history, uh, but it actually tells us something that's really important about the human heart and who we are as people, something that we've got to know about ourselves and about people around us. And that is that when we are not worshiping the true and living God, it's not that we worship nothing, it's that we worship anything. That's really important. And you might think, well, that was maybe true for those people in Athens, but it's, it's not true now. I didn't drive uh, past many temples or statues on my way to church this morning. But that's to misunderstand what idols are. Idols are anything that, that take the place of the true and living God in our lives, that function as a a God within our lives. So, so it might be a carved statue in a remote a Pacific island, or, or it might be a, a job that a person does, or someone. It's, it's anything that we put in the place of, a living, of the true and living God. John, John Stott says it like this, idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. The Bible says that. Ideologies can be idolatry. So can fame or wealth or power or sex or food or alcohol or parents or spouse or children or friends work, recreation, televisions, possession, even church, religion, and Christian service. So, you see Stott's point whenever he gives us that list. Whatever takes the place of God in a person's life is an idol, a God substitute. And it could even be a good thing. We, some of the things in John Stott's list were very good things, parents and children, for example. But as we've said before, a good thing when it becomes a God thing, becomes a bad thing. So, that's, that's really important. Good thing when it becomes a bad thing, becomes a God thing. So, a good thing can get into a place in your life that's really God's place. 
where you begin to live for that thing or that person. Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. They, they invent idols. So what we actually see in, in Athens, this, this city that is smothered in idols, is really a sort of a visual representation of what we're just like as people. That if we don't worship the true and living God, we'll worship anything. And we must worship something because we are worshipers. We're wired that way. We're built that way. And if it's not the true and living God, it will be something else. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, analyzes the human heart, and he says, we, we worship and serve the created thing rather than the creature, or rather than the creator, the created thing rather than the creator. We take the worship that's due to God alone, and we direct it to something else. That's what we're like. So how should we see the world? We should see it as, as full of people who are made and designed to worship God. That's who we are. But if we don't worship Him, then we will worship something. There'll be something that will fulfill the role of God in our lives, something that we'll bow down to, something that will give us meaning and purpose and hope and security, something that we will serve. That's how we see the world. How should, we, <clears throat> how should we feel about the world? That's another question, isn't it? How should we feel about the world? This is verse 16. Again, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He, he was greatly distressed. He was really annoyed. It's a very strong word. Sometimes uh, people see this and they think that, that this is Paul demonstrating his concern for lost people. That's true to an extent. It's true that we should be concerned for lost people. We, we, we know that the, the Bible tells us that people only find true and lasting peace and joy as we come to the Lord. That's the story of so many of us, isn't it? That, that, that we, you know, as the old hymn says, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. In other words, we, 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 we tried lots of things, and then we come to Jesus, and we, we, we realize that that's, He's the one that our hearts have been crying out for. He's the one that we've been looking for. Now, I, so Paul, was he looking at this city and saying, these, these folk are so lost, they're, 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 they're so uh, in trouble, they're, they're, they're going to miss out on the Lord and miss out on an eternity with Him. And of course, lost people matter to Paul. But it's more, it seems, than just his concern for lost people here. That word, greatly distressed, is a word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was linked to God's jealousy for his name, especially when people were worshiping idols in the Old Testament. And so it looks as if Luke has used that word to echo what was said of God's divine jealousy. Now, we find it maybe a little bit awkward to talk about divine jealousy, don't we? Because we sort of think, well, that seems a bit strange. I mean, after all, I shouldn't be jealous for my position. Why should God be jealous for His? I shouldn't mind it if somebody overlooks me or doesn't mention me or doesn't think about me. Why should God mind? Well, simply the answer to that, we could talk about this for a long time, but simply the answer to that is that God is God and we are not. He is the creator and we are creatures. 
And you see, if there's something else that God is content for the glory that should be His to go to, then really He is saying that that's really God. That's worthy of something. And, and, and then He wouldn't be God, and, and effectively everything would fall apart. One of the things that we've got to understand is that, that God is not a better us. He, he is different than us. He, he is the Creator. And you see, Paul not only loves people, but he loves the Lord, and he is jealous uh, for the Lord. Let's think of it. A, a, a stupid illustration, perhaps, but imagine you're a sausage salesman, and you, you work for this sausage firm. You know that they make the best sausages ever, and you know the boss of the firm. He's a great guy. He's, he's, a, he's kind to his workers. He, he genuinely wants to put good things into the, 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 the sausages so that they're healthy, if you can have a healthy sausage, I'm not sure. And uh, he really wants the best for his customers. And you visit a new town. You're on a city break in, in Armagh. And, and, and you go into a shop and you realize that nobody has heard of, of your sausages. And you see the sausages that are on the shelves and they're rubbish and you know they're full of all sorts of things that are really, really not good for you. Well, you see, what, what you would be there is you would... You would be, hopefully, you would be jealous for the firm that you work for, jealous for the boss of the firm that you work for, jealous for your product. Well, you see, Paul, in a hugely different scale, is, is just jealousy. He, he sees all this worship that should be going to God, and it's going in the wrong place. This city that's full of people who were designed to glorify God. That's what they're made for. They're made to bring glory to God, to wake up each morning and to thank their Creator for every breath and to live for Him during the day. But they're waking up each morning and they're just living for themselves and worshiping whatever these empty idols are that they particularly turn to. And he's greatly distressed. Why? Because he says, my God deserves worship. He is so great that He deserves the worship of people. It's, it's, it's our highest motivation for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. As you think of your friends and your family and, and those around you who, who, who don't know the Lord, are, are you burdened for them? I hope, I hope we are. I hope we know that, 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 that until we find Christ, we, 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 we are uh, scraping around for, for, for something. But are we concerned, too, that, that the God to whom all glory is due is worthy of the worship of those who do not yet know Him and worthy of our worship? We, sh we should feel distressed at a world that is denying God His rightful praise. He's worth it. What we should feel about the world but then what should we say to the world? What should we say to the world? Well, Paul is speaking in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And as he's in the marketplace, an opportunity opens up. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. <clears throat> Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? It's always encouraging for a preacher to read that verse, to think that Paul, Paul uh, was spoken about in the same way that we will be in over the lunch table today. That's great. Now, now, the people that Paul meets are interesting. They are Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans were a 
group of people that followed the teaching of a chap called Epicurus, didn't really believe that there was a God, or if there was, he was sort of remote and distant, and, and life was just accidental and, and, and so on. So the little concept of a, an afterlife or judgment, didn't believe in a resurrection, and, and basically here and now is all that there was, and therefore you sort of make pleasure your goal. Not, not outright hedonism, but just sort of getting through and, and enjoying life, because that's all there is. And then there were the Stoics. They followed Zeno's teaching. They stressed reason as the principle by which you should live. They were a bit emotionless. They were cold and logic. And if tough things come into your life, you just had to sort of set yourself and go through it. We, we use that word today. Somebody's very stoical. Stiff upper lip. John stopped, summarized them as those who enjoy life and those who endure life. It's very up-to-date, isn't it? Isn't that what we see, people around us? Life, well, it's just an opportunity to have fun, some say, Epicureans, make the most of it. And those who say life is tough, push through it as best you can, Stoics. And so they invite him to come to this meeting of the Areopagus, a sort of a court on the hill in, or in, in Athens, overlooking the city where, where all the, the thinkers gather and explore the new ideas. So it's a sort of university of Athens. And, and Paul goes there and he speaks to this gathering of great thinkers, the world's great thinkers. You're amazed by his versatility that he can be chatting to Lydia at a, a riverside one day, and then he can be uh, interacting with the great and the good another day. He wants to speak to everyone. Now, this is a, 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 not a long address as it's recorded for us, and the scholars tell us that probably each of these sort of things are, this is a summary, and each of these things are headings. The uh, speeches at the Areopagus would have taken hours usually. So, so the, we're meant to understand these are great subject areas that, that Paul is uh, using here, that Luke has recorded for us here. Uh, and uh, that there are a number of ways that we could divide this up. But let me just give you five sort of pressing things that, that sort of stand out, I, I think at least, in this message to Athens and to the world. First thing is, God made you. Here they are. God made you. He doesn't need you. He's in charge. We should seek Him, and we are accountable. Men of Athens, verse 22, I see that in every way you're very religious, for as I walked around to a, and carefully looked at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Wonderful blend of tact and, and courage in how Paul does this. He builds bridges and he also crosses them. He quotes their poets and so on, and yet he challenges their, their ignorance he begins by, by actually getting to something, I think, of their felt needs, this altar to an unknown God. Because they had this huge number of idols, you see, and yet they were saying, this isn't quite doing it, and what if we've missed someone? What if there's a God out there that we haven't really come to terms with? We better worship that one too. Doesn't, doesn't it say to us that these people had not found in all of their worship and, and effort, they had not found what they were, as you two said, they had not found what they were looking for. And Paul says, the one that you're looking for, I will now tell you about. Do you know, this is the, this is the marvelous thing. 
about talking about Jesus, a, a privilege that we can all have, and that is that we are introducing people to the one who is the answer to their heart's cry. You've got to know that, that everybody you will meet through this week, their heart is crying out for Jesus, and they might not know it, and we might not even be conscious of it, but it is the case. This is the God that our hearts cry is for because He is our Maker. He made everything. He, he's not one God amongst many, as the Greeks believe. He's above it all. And now we're really seeing Him talk about something special. You see, they had domesticated their gods and put them in temples, but this God made everything. He even made the temples. And, and so He can't be limited to a temple. He's everywhere. How important that as we communicate to this world, we, we, we talk about this God not as some sort of wish fulfillment, not as someone who would be really quite comfortable if He was there for us, but He is the Creator. That means that we've got purpose. It means we're not accidental. The Epicureans thought we were sort of accidental. Paul's saying, no, He, he made us all. God made you. Same thing is, He doesn't need you. He's not served by human hands, verse 25, as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So this runs right across these sort of pagan ideas of God. God doesn't need us. The Athenians thought that the gods needed sort of favors to be done for them. And, and this is, is very much where our hearts are, where, where naturally we think about God. We think, well, if I can, if God sort of, if I can bring him something, if I can do something for him, then you know, he, he'll be in my debt, and I can manipulate him a little bit. So, I do this worship, and then I'll scratch his back. He'll bless mine. But you see, you can't do favors for a God who doesn't need us. That's what Paul is saying here. You know what we say at Christmas, you know, what do you get to someone? What do you give to someone who's got everything? You can't give him anything if it's God. Now, as we, we say this, you see, we set Christianity apart from every other religion. The Athenians thought in terms of just placating the gods and getting them on their side, earning blessing. You can't do that with God because He's not served by human hands. And the amazing thing is that though He does not need us, as we're going to see, He, he wants us. Isn't that great? He's in charge. From one man, He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the, the set times for them, the exact places where they should live. This is a God who doesn't need us, but who rules all things. This is not some tiny, put him on a shelf in the corner God to pull out whenever you need a bit of luck in your life. This is the God who who determined your postcode. And then the fourth thing is we, we should seek Him. God did this so that men would seek Him, verse 27, and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. This is beautiful. This God who does not need us wants us. A God that we cannot impress seeks a relationship with us. He wants us to seek Him. 
If God is God and has made us, we should turn to Him. We should seek Him. And the word that Paul uses here for perhaps reach out to Him, as the NIV has it, is one that would have sort of echoed in, in their literature and so on. It was the story some of us grew up watching, some of those little uh, Greek myth stories on the TV with the terrible CGI uh, uh, animations and so on. And, and, and the Greek poet Homer had told the story of the Cyclops, the big one-eyed guy, a bit of a monster. And he captured the hero, Odysseus. But Odysseus had gotten the cy- Cyclops drunk. Don't know how you do that carefully, I'm sure. And, and then he poked his eye out with a stick. Now, that made him really, really mad because he only had one eye. And the Cyclops in the cave that he was holding Odysseus in, Odysseus was trying to escape and, and, and he, 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 he uh, groped around for Odysseus. And that's the word that Paul uses. Groping around, that we might grope around for God, isn't that On the one hand, we're saying to God, I'm not sure that I really want you in my life. But on the other hand, we're like blind people groping around for him. Paul is saying in our sin, we're as blind as the Cyclops, but we have an obligation to reach out for the God that we cannot see. God says we should seek him. And then the last thing is we're, we're accountable. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, for He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof to, of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. So Paul introduces judgment. So this is not just an interesting theory that he's presenting. This is life and death. Everyone, he says, will stand before this God. He will judge the world. No one will escape God's reckoning. And His judgment will be absolutely fair and full. He will judge with justice. There'll be no bad verdicts. There'll be nobody who can say that's not fair. And Jesus is the judge. Paul has already been preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And the resurrection is proof of the fact that this judgment will take place. And you see, so this is the, this is the, the message that that Paul brings. And, and he's creating this foundation. He, he doesn't start reasoning from the Scriptures. He's t- stepping right back to say, here is the God who has made us, doesn't need us, yet seeks a relationship with us. We should seek Him, and we are accountable to Him. Now, maybe Paul was cut short here. People differ about that, but it says that many sneered some wanted to hear him further, and some believed. That's how it is, isn't it? Talk to people about Jesus. Some people go, oh, what a lot of rubbish, you Christians. Some people say, I- I- I'd love to believe that that was true. I really admire your faith. I- I- tell me a little bit more. And some people believe. Some of them realized that they've been living for the wrong things and worshiping the wrong gods and, and now need it to come to the true and living God through his son, Jesus. So, so this is Paul's message to the world, to the world that has not been prepared by the Scriptures. God made you. He doesn't need you. He's in charge. We should seek him. We're accountable to him. It's a life-giving 
message. It's what connects people to the true and living God who has given us his Son. And of course, we cannot take it to the world unless we've grasped it ourselves. Could it be perhaps that some of us here or some of us listening, that we are realizing that we've been worshiping the wrong things, we've been orientated in the wrong direction? The things that sort of make us tick, that get us up in the morning, are, are, are just anything but God. And if that's the case, we, we need to repent and seek the God who wants us to seek Him, who doesn't need us, but welcomes us. Let's pray for a moment together. Lord, what a, what a wonderful thing to know that though you are God and made us and do not need us, we thank you that you want us, that you welcome us, that through Jesus you've done everything necessary for us to know you. Lord, we pray that you will help us to turn our worship from all that is not you to you. For you deserve all that we may bring. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.